Welcome to A Word in Season with Doug Stringer and Friends. We share good news and godly wisdom to empower you to be salt and light in every season of life. Ray Comfort shares from his own life story, testimony, and ministry journey that has impacted lives around the globe. He recognized the fear of the Lord that eventually led him into a relationship with Christ and developed a hunger for truth and righteousness. Join Ray and Doug as they discuss how the truths of God's Word and His commandments can lead others to know Him as well. After the episode, consider leaving a review and follow us on your favorite streaming service. If you've gleaned anything from this podcast, consider paying it forward with a gift at somebodycares.org. Now let's join Doug and Ray. Father, we uh, we have no words to express the gratitude that we have for the cross, for all you've done for us, for giving us life and saving us from death. And our heart breaks for the multitudes that are in the valley of decision, those that are in the shadow of death. And mm. pray that you would use this broadcast to equip your saints for the work of the ministry that you'll uh, give us wisdom. Give us freedom of thought, liberty of mind to share that which we have that will edify and encourage other brethren. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. It's really exciting today to have someone that I've, as I was sharing even before we came on, I was telling Ray Comfort that in the 1980s and 90s, there were certain people that had left an indelible impact in my life that I still look in those days with great fondness as of course being provoked to go deeper in the Lord, higher in expectation in the Lord. And there's people like that and others that I gleaned from that have left an impact in my life. And Ray, comfort again, you are one of those that literally had an impact in my life. And I think we were pondering when we first met, and that was, uh, I believe in the mid eighties, uh, there in Christchurch, New Zealand, you were itinerating from there and that's where we met. You were actually on a stepladder, bantering with and preaching the gospel from Cathedral Square. And I remember you used to banter with, the, they would call him the wizard. And it was actually, a, it was written up in some of the tourism guides to go check out the wizard at uh, Cathedral Square. And, and that's how I first met you. And I was so impressed with just your ability to use scripture, the authenticity of how you communicated speaking truths that was seasoned with a lot of grace, but speaking the truth nonetheless, and also your your use of humor to uh, get people's attention. And so, Ray, it's great to have you on today. Of course, always great to see you. Oh, it's my honor, and I've got fond memories of meeting you too, Duggan. You've brought back a lot of memories from Cathedral Square. What a great opportunity I had. Every day, people would be sitting on steps, and I'd get up and preach the gospel to them. That was the first lunch hour. Second lunch hour was the wizard. And uh, the wizard and I were friendly enemies. And sometimes we'd have meals together. I took him home for a meal. I would swap birthday presents and Christmas presents. And uh, it was great. I remember thinking if Jesus could call Judas friend as he betrayed him, I could, I could befriend this wizard who was anti-Christian. Uh, he looked on me as a born again, low grade. He was high England. And uh, we, we got on really good. And we had a great relationship. Sometimes he'd allow me to preach to his crowd, which was massive. He'd let me climb up his ladder and preach and he'd just stand there while I preach the gospel. So I thank God for those wonderful memories and especially meeting you. Well, we'll get to this to a moment. God has always used moments like that in two things. One, in preparation for the things you would do in a larger scale and a wider uh, breadth of sharing the gospel. But I remember even how those platforms were given to you and those preparatory days for even when you came to the U.S. and started Living Waters Ministries here in the U.S. and, of course, uh, The Way of the Master with Kirk Cameron. And, and there's so many things that, that have expanded, have gone deeper and wider 
But even a few years ago, we were talking by telephone and how the attack against you by the atheists actually opened up opportunity to preach more to people that you would have never had access to because of those kinds of moments. Yeah, it's wonderful how God uses foolish things to confound the wise. I found when I befriend atheists and show them kindness, it's it's huge for them because among the world, I mean, I, I sent a gift card to a high profile atheist once out of the blue, and it just about brought her to tears. She went on her channel, which had seven or 800,000 subscribers, and she just about wept at the fact that I'd shown her kindness. We take it for granted. You hear of Christians giving away cars to other Christians and money all the time. But when you do it for a non-Christian, because it doesn't happen in their world so often, it's like a bright light in the darkness. So I've tried my best to show kindness to the nastiest of atheists and found that it really has softened them and made them friends. I've got to call up well-known atheists, high-profile atheists, uh, and stay friends with them. So I thank God for that principle. You've never shied away from biblical foundations by which you share the gospel. Of course, your very first book I read uh, was under the title Poured Out for a Thirsty World when I first read it in New Zealand, and then it came out as Hell's Best Kept Secret. Just amazing. And then, of course, you wrote a book later called How Atheists Don't Believe in God, but you put God Doesn't Believe in Atheists. So in other words, you've always taken very difficult social mores. You've been able to confront them with biblical truths in a way that people can actually begin to listen and hear you. And as you said, it's not coming across angry, but it's coming across with fact and with truth and and with the word and and that's been a very uh, exciting to see how God has used you and opened up huge channels for ministry. You, know, you put out films on abortion. You put out films on the sexual revolution that's going on now and this modern day revolution of homosexuality and homosexual marriage and giving a biblical perspective of those things. You've talked about the issues of atheists and you've dealt with every issue that so many, even church leaders and pastors, are shying away from because they don't want to deal with the pressure. But you've been able to communicate in a way that people actually listen, and you ask them questions that help them to actually respond. Would you share with us a little bit about some of the things that you've had to journey through and how you came into, I mean, a massive Living Waters Ministries is doing a lot in video and streaming and YouTubes and audio. You're doing so many things. It's reaching so many people, but you've never shied away from the real issues that we need to actually address biblically. Yeah, I'm stumbled across the principle that God uses nobodies from nowhere with nothing but a love for him. He, he chooses little old shepherd boys out the back that are shorter than all the big brothers and Stuff like that really encourages me. And so I think the key has been just to serve God with my whole heart. I look back on my 50-something years of being a Christian, and I'm so grateful that I understood the principle, if you give God everything, he'll do the same for you. It's like a a silly little kid story that I saw years ago, a little book. I think the name of the book was Tootle. And it was a train that came down a track, and he longed to be free of those confines on the track. And he'd see you know, horses leaping about in the fields and he saw lambs leaping about in the fields. So one day he jumped off the tracks and he didn't find freedom. He found disaster because the makers of a train created it to find freedom of expression within the confines of the track. And the key to Christianity is to give God everything, get on the track, take his yoke upon you and learn of him 
For he's meek and lowly of heart, and you'll find rest your soul. So the admonition of Paul to present your body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is a reasonable service, is the key. And I did that a month after I became a Christian. I'll never forget it. I used to have a surf shop, and I made leather jackets to order for people, and it was just booming. And one day, uh, as a new Christian, I just got on my knees and said, oh, God, I give you everything. I give you my business, everything. And I'm not sure how long afterwards, it was a very short time, a gentleman I'd never seen walked into my store. He said, I've just purchased this building. You're out of here. You don't have a contract. And off I went. I had to work from home and I, I lost everything. And, and I look back, when I say I lost everything, I just didn't have my store anymore and my means of income in that sense. And it caused me to go in close to the square. And that's when the square opened up. But I look back and I say, thank God for that moment, because that was when God began to use me in a wonderful way to reach the lost in the local square to preach the gospel and did that every day, almost every day for 12 years. And, and then doors opened into the U.S. I was in Hawaii preaching. A pastor heard that teaching called Hell's Best Kept Seeker. He disagreed at first, and then he began studying scripture and he became convinced that it was a message that America needed to hear. And so he called me in New Zealand many times. And one day he just said, we want you to come to the U.S., and bring this teaching specifically for the church of the U.S. So we prayed about it, and within three days, 13 really weird things happened to convince us that God wanted us to move from New Zealand and everything we had there, itinerant ministry family, and come to the U.S. One of those things was I mentioned to a, a guy, I said, I'm thinking of selling my home. He said, I'll buy it. The first person I mentioned my house was for sale. He bought it on the spot. And so 13 different things happened. We moved to the U.S. And for the first three years, things were very, very quiet. I thought, Lord, what are you having me here for? Doors aren't opening. People don't know who I am. They can't trust me in the pulpit. They don't know if I'm a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon or whatever. In New Zealand, I had established an itinerant ministry and people knew who I was, but not in the U.S. And then I received that call from David Wilkerson. He said, I've just heard Hell's Best Kept Secret. He said, I absolutely love it. I want you to preach it at my church. He flew me to New York, had breakfast with him, biggest thrill of my life. And then Bill Goth had called and he screened the teaching. He'd seen it. He had screened the, he screened the teaching to 30,000 pastors. And that just blew open the doors and gave credibility. And then Kirk Cameron, the actor, called. He said he had heard of Hell's Best Kept Secret. He listened to it twice. He said, this has blown me away. And he wanted to combine ministries. And so... Having Kirk was absolutely amazing, and I got to get on television networks that wouldn't have touched me with a barge pole, but because of Kirk's celebrity, they let me come in and preach. Uh, it was like jalapeno wrapped in candy. Uh, <laughs> they'd say, come on, this is sweet, and I was able to preach sin, holiness, righteousness, and judgment on networks that normally wouldn't do that. They were just filled with fluff. So I thank God for what's happened. Our YouTube channel's just passed 200 million views. Our television program and it's in its eighth season that airs in 190 countries. And it all comes back to that principle. God uses nobodies from nowhere with nothing but a love for him. Amen. Wow. I think about those years. I actually think I have some, if people remember what cassettes are, I have some cassettes of you. When we used to have you come out to do our spiritual impact and evangelism conferences in Houston. And of course, I think the National Street Ministers Conference, you've been there. And so I think I have some old cassettes I'm going to have to bring out of, of storage and try to see if I can salvage them and put them on digital. Those messages still have, have left an impact in people's lives. And of course, your life itself 
It's one thing to have a good message. Dr. Edwin Lewis Cole, who started the Christian Men's Network, used to teach us that, you know, your gifting can take you so far, but only the character of Christ and you can take you further. And that's the summary of my vernacular there. But the point is, is that uh, the character of Christ in you and the message together has truly impacted hundreds of thousands, if not millions of lives around the world. And and again, it's because you've never seen yourself bigger than you ought. You do see yourself as a as a vessel of the Lord, and you've just simply obeyed God on a daily basis. And I appreciate just the message that you continue to give. And it's foundational because everything you teach comes right back down to some very biblically foundational principles. Yeah, I know in your book, Poured Out for Thirsty World, Hell's Best Kept Secret, as well as others, uh, you you actually use the Ten Commandments as a way to help people understand that if you've broken one, you've broken them all. Give us the premise of just the message, how God gave that to you, and then how it came out into your book, and then, of course, into a lot of what you do today. Yeah, way back in 1982, I was incredibly frustrated by the fact that so few Christians shared their faith, and that 80% or even 90% of those making a decision for Christ were falling away, both in our local church and in the mass crusades. I thought, what's wrong? I remember one Friday night, just before I had to travel and preach somewhere, I read a portion of sermon by Charles Spurgeon, in which he said something like this. What will you do when the law comes in terror, when the trumpet of the archangel shall tear you from your grave, when the eyes of God shall burn their way into your guilty soul, when the book shall be opened and all your sin and shame shall be punished? Can you stand against an angry law in that day? I remember looking at it and thinking, man, that's a little different from God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. I remember thinking, what is Spurgeon doing? I didn't really understand it. He was using the moral law to bring in knowledge of sin. And that weekend, as I was sitting reading the scriptures before I had to minister in a small church, I read Galatians 3.24, wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. And I misread it in my mind subconsciously. I read it, wherefore the law was Israel's schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. But I say, he's not saying that. He said to bring us to Christ. I thought, I wonder if Spurgeon was right. Can you pick up the Ten Commandments and apply them to a sinner's conscience and bring a knowledge of sin? So I closed my Bible, very cold day, went to a hot pool in this local town. These uh, thermal pools jumped in and waited for someone to sit next to me. This big guy sat next to me. And instead of saying, and I gave my life to Jesus and he filled the God-shaped vacuum in my heart and I I just have so much joy and peace. I said, you know, when I came to Christ, that means that I was saved from God's wrath on judgment day because I didn't realize that if I looked at a woman and lusted for her, I committed adultery with her in my heart. That if I'd lied or stolen, I was a lying thief. That's why I needed a savior to save me from wrath to come. And God provided a savior in Jesus. The curse of the law fell upon him so it wouldn't have to fall upon me. I broke God's law. Jesus paid the fine. That means God could dismiss my case all because of the death and resurrection of the Savior. And I said, if a man repents and trusts in Christ, God forgives his sins and grants everlasting life as a free gift, not because we're good, but because God is good and kind and rich in mercy. And that guy, I don't know if I said it exactly like that, but that guy, I remember he stood to his feet. I'll never forget it because his body was steaming in the cold. And he says, I've never heard that put so clearly in all my life. A light went on in his head and a light went on in my head and thought it worked. 
The law is a schoolmaster. It brings the knowledge of sin. Paul said, I had not known sin, but by the law. He said, by the law, sin became exceedingly sinful. So I remember going to a Christian bookstore and opening up books by the greats, uh, Wesley and Spurgeon, etc., and Luther. And I found everywhere I looked, they said, if you don't use the law to bring the knowledge of sin, you'll fill the church with false converts. So I put it into this teaching called How's Best Kept Secret. And I thought, I'm going to get ostracized as a, uh, a legalist. But the exact opposite happened. Doors began to open. Doors open in Hawaii, of all places. Somebody has to do it. So I went to Hawaii and ministered there many times at the YOM base. And that's how doors open through into the U.S. So that's the synopsis of this teaching, that you'll never convince anyone to take a cure unless you first convince them they have the disease. They're not going to want a cure. They're not going to appreciate it. They're not going to appropriate it. But if you can make them sweat as you point out the symptoms and they begin to say, oh, I'm dying. What should I do? And you say, hey, here's the cure. They're now going to appreciate it and appropriate it because the knowledge of what the disease is made them desire it. And so when we use the law to bring the knowledge of sin, sure, we make sinners sweat. We produce fear in their heart to a point where they're shaken and say with a Philippian jailer, what must I do to be saved? And then we say, here is the cure of the gospel. And now they appreciate it and appropriate it because the law produced the knowledge of sin. So these are great points to segue even because I was looking at something I wrote in July of 2012, and I was addressing something that comes and cycles in, you know, every few years and it's uh, antinomianism. And for those that would like to just to clarify what that is, it's just the, the belief that under dispensation of grace, the moral law is of no use and rejects a socially established morality. Yet Hebrews 10, 26 through 29 refers to this as in trampling underfoot the Son of God and counting the blood of the covenant as an unholy thing, profaning the holy blood of Christ that was shed for us and insulting the spirit of grace. So, uh, you know, without the moral law, and the love of truth, we open up that proverbial Pandora's box to lawlessness and anarchy. And so we see that, that I was sensing this and saw this emerging, you know, 10 years ago and probably before that, but we've seen it lived out the last few years, this, this lawlessness and anarchy. And because there is no schoolmaster, people are not, even in the church, not sharing that the law is not, we're, no, we're not under the law, we're free from the law, but we need the law as a schoolmaster to help us appreciate this abounding, great and amazing grace of God. Yeah, it was grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my fears relieved. We should come with a fear of God in our heart because we've heard the thunderings and seen the lightnings of Sinai and realized that God sees the heart. Man, the night of my conversion, I trembled. I remember being with a friend on a surfing trip and just his Bible was on the table and I read Matthew 5, 27. You've heard it said by them of old, you shall not commit adultery. Seventh commandment, I'll make it to heaven because I've never committed adultery. But then I read what followed it. But I say to you, whoever looks upon a woman to lust for her has committed adultery already with her in his heart. And it was like an arrow hit my chest. And I realized I'm undone. If God sees my thought life and he considers lust, the thing I live for as a non-Christian, to be adultery, 
I'm heading for hell. And what the Lord did is it put salt on my tongue. It made me thirst for righteousness. I'd never desired righteousness in my whole 22 years as a non-Christian. What do I want righteousness for? I had as much desire for the word righteousness as a four-year-old boy has for the word bath. Righteousness, irrelevant. But when the Lord did its work, I began to say, oh, what should I do to be made right? I began to thirst for righteousness. And that's the righteousness that comes with the gospel. The law strips us, leaves us naked before a holy God, ashamed. And along comes the father and clothes the prodigal son and cleanses us of our, our sins. And so the law has a, a most necessary and blessed purposes. I think Spurgeon or one of those great said, it brings us to Christ and it keeps us there. Why does it keep me there? Because I know that as many as have sinned in the law shall be judged by the law. James, when speaking of those Ten Commandments, says we shall be judged by the perfect law of liberty. And that law demands absolute holiness and calls for the blood of those that transgress its commandments. And Jesus said, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it's better to enter heaven without an eye than to go to hell with both your eyes. So the law makes us tremble and keeps us at, at, the, at the base of Calvary. So I thank God for that law that did its work in bringing me to Christ. And it still does its work in keeping me there. Yeah, that's very similar for me. I was almost 25 years old in the fitness business, and uh, I won't get into the whole testimony of what brought me to that moment, but I was living in sin, professing to be a Christian. And when I went to my knees in my office, in my exercise business, I remember just saying, God, I just can't take this anymore. And it wasn't audible, but it could, it could have been. It was so deep and real in my heart. And when the Lord spoke to my heart, it says, don't call me Lord anymore unless you're willing to live for me. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking, but wait a minute. I you know, I, I believe that Jesus is the son of God. I do, you know, I'm only human. This is, you know, I'm just, I'm, just I, I'm not trying to sin. I'm just a sinner. That's, we're all sinners. And I went through all these justifications of excuses to satisfy the lusts of my life. And yet wanting my grace to have my fire insurance, so to speak, we'd say back then. And I remember the Lord speaking to my heart again and saying, what makes you any different? Because even the demons know who I am. And it was in that moment when I said, Lord, if you can do anything with someone like me who has broken your heart, brought shame to your name, then I will make myself available the rest of my life. There was no lightning. There was no fireworks. But something happened in that moment, that point of accountability, something at that moment. And in that overwhelming sense of initially the, this overwhelming sense of trepidation or fear of God, all of a sudden this abounding grace came on me. And literally, things begin to change. It was like he was leading me in the paths of righteousness, and yet I learned not to justify by excuse my appetite for sin and lust, but allowed him to do the work of grace, that sometimes grace is not an excuse to sin. It's the ability by God's grace to help us overcome the works of the flesh and sin. And so uh, that moment was a moment of fear. And trembling at the same time, this abounding great grace was poured on me. And by God's grace, I've never turned back or looked back. God has been able to bring me through and lead me in the paths of righteousness 40 years. Yeah, you know, we discredit the power of the fear of the Lord. It's the beginning of wisdom, Scripture says. I experienced the fear of God, I think it was six years before I became a Christian, at the age of 16. And this is a wonderful story, and it warms my heart because it has such a, a powerful message. I found myself at the age of 16 in long grass in the dark with a gorgeous 16-year-old female at the back of a dance hall. My attentions were not honorable. 
And this young lady uh, said something to me. It was just like five or six words that absolutely shattered me. And it was just amazing. As we lay there in the grass, she looked at me and said, you know what? God is watching us. <laughs> I thought, what? God is watching us? And it put the fear of God in my heart. I was a non-Christian. I said, well, let's just go back into the hall. And I look back now and I say, thank God for that. Because I could have got a young girl pregnant. She could have had an abortion. I was a non-Christian. I didn't have any ethics, no foundation. And yet the fear of the Lord came upon me in those moments and caused me to pull back from doing something that would have shamed my family, which it did in those days and would have shamed her and her family. So I am a, a strong believer in the fear of God. I preach the fear of the Lord and I explain to people that the fear of the Lord is good. When I talk to a sinner, I'll say to him, if you die without Christ, you will justly end up in hell. That breaks my heart. We've looked at the commandments. You're worthy of death. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. You've earned your wages. You're in big trouble. And they go, yes. And I say to them, if you're on the edge of a plane and you didn't put a parachute on because you had no concern, you had to jump 10,000 feet, but you're unconcerned, the best thing I could ever do for you if I care about you is hang you out the plane by your ankles for two seconds. You're going to come back in and say, give me that parachute. Why? Because fear has caused you to tremble and realize what would happen to you if you fell 10,000 feet and hit the ground on your face. Hmm. That fear is your friend, not your enemy. And I say to them, I've tried to put the fear of God in you, hoping you'll see that fear as your friend, not your enemy. And I do it because I love you, because I want to see you come to the foot of the cross. And you'll never do that if you don't fear God. If you love your sins, they'll be preeminent in your life. The only thing you'll be concerned about is pleasure. That's what concerns most unsaved people. We have the right to pursue happiness, but there's something greater than happiness. And the Bible calls it righteousness. Your happiness is not important to God as righteousness is. You can be happy in fornication. You can be happy killing someone. It might give you a great thrill, a snuff movie or whatever. But happiness isn't the issue. What is the issue is righteousness. And the Bible says, riches profit not on the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. And the only way a sinner who loves a sin is going to let go of those sins and thirst after righteousness is if he sees his danger and begins to fear. And so scripture says, through the fear of the Lord, men depart from evil. So it's most necessary to use in our preaching. And we don't talk about fear of God with a smile in our eye. There's a tear in our eye. We preach wrath because it's going to come on the day of judgment. And we preach it because we're motivated by love for the lost. We speak the truth in love. And that should be evident in our tone. You know, I was taken back to those days in the square. I remember I had a, a drug prevention center in a great big building called the Dome. I was right up the top. And one day I received a phone call at the, about 7 a.m. and early in the morning, and I heard a voice say, Ray, the Regent Theater is on fire. And I believed him the second he said that the whole building that my ministry was in was on fire. It was, I thank God for it because it opened the door to US eventually. But I believed him because of his tone. He had passion in his tone. The Regent Theater building is on fire. And that's what we need to have in our tone when we witness to the ungodly. 
There's not a flippancy. They're going to die and be damned in hell. We should have a tear in our voice as we reason with the ungodly, as Paul did with Felix. He reasoned with him, and Felix trembled. Why did he tremble? Because he began to believe what Paul was saying because of Paul's tone. When you talk about the fear of the Lord, the fear of God, and there's such a distinction between the fear of the Lord and the fear of man or the fear of the world or the fear of the devil. As Ed Cole taught me, faith is believing those things you cannot see will come to pass. But fear is believing those things you cannot see will come to pass. But one is the kingdom of God, one's the kingdom of darkness. But in this situation, the fear of the Lord is distinguishably different than the fear of man or the fear of the world or the fear of the devil. Could you kind of touch on that a bit? Because it segues also in something you said about David Wilkerson, because when I was with him, he had shared with me that a lot of people, because you talked about uh, speak the truth in love, season with grace is what we call it. We say we have to season that with grace, but we must speak the truth nonetheless. But he said, there's many people that want to preach a message of repentance or a message of holiness because it moves people, but they'll do a message. It moves people. But yet he says, if you have not wept between the porch and the altar before you get up to speak to people, then you're going to miss what God is wanting to do because you no longer have a heart for the people. It's about the message and what you can move the people to do. He said, always weep in private between the porch and the altar for those you're getting ready to minister to. That's been a part of my thinking in my processing, in my private prayer times, my knee time, before I even get out to go and speak to people. And people say, are you accustomed to preaching anymore? You get, when you stand before people, you, you seem so comfortable. I said, actually, no. I always get up with this new sense of I need God's grace to help me to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit leading and for the sake of the people that I'm getting ready to minister to. Yeah, um, the fear of the man brings a sneer, and the Bible speaks of a fear that has torment, which is different than the fear of man. And so I am continually battling fear. People say, oh, you get up and preach in universities, you're fearless, you're courageous. No, I'm not. I'm terrified. I'm always, when I, whenever I see a stranger, I see Zacchaeus becomes Goliath in a split second. I gotta go, I'm going to speak to that person. Oh, what say they reject me? And what I've got to do is put on my mantle of a firefighter. A firefighter fights fires because he's a firefighter. He doesn't go to a fire and see a building on fire and people screaming on the third, fourth story for help and say, oh, I'm going home. No, he's a firefighter. And what he has to do is ignore his fears. He sees this woman, fifth story, holding on to kids and screaming and flames licking behind her. She's going to be dead in moments. He has to climb a 60-foot ladder. Is he terrified? Absolutely. Is he terrified as he reaches out to grab those children, grab that woman? Terror beyond words. Flames licking at him. Would he rather be home with his wife? Of course he would. Watching an old black and white movie on television. But he doesn't do it because he doesn't think of himself he thinks of those people and their terrible fate. And that's what will dissipate our fears. When I think of the ungodly and the fate that awaits them, it makes my fear nothing, absolutely nothing. How could I ever be worried about myself when this person, if they die today, is going to hell? And so I completely ignore my fears. I've learned to ignore it. And one thing that's really helped me is when I've gone up to a stranger to share the gospel, that's the big thing. That's the Goliath thing. I've learned one question that has absolutely destroyed all my fears, and this is it. And if you take nothing from today besides this, that's fine. This is what I do. I have this question, do you think there's an afterlife? It's a simple question. 
complete stranger. You know, we we hear of something called uh, friendship evangelism, where you build a friendship with someone for a couple of years before you have the right to share the gospel. I believe in friendship evangelism, and I'll build a relationship with someone for 30 seconds before I share the gospel with them. I'm not going to wait two years. They could die in that time. But I go up to someone like this guy named Fred. Hey, what's your name? Fred. I'm Ray. Nice to meet you, Fred. Fred, I got a question for you. He says, do you think there's an afterlife? And Fred says, I don't know. Do you think about it much? He says, all the time. His all the time completely dissipates my fears. That means that he's a human being with a love of life and a fear of death. And suddenly compassion arises in me. And I say to him, well, are you going to make it to heaven? Are you a good person? He says, I'm a good person. Yeah. And that's when I take him through the commandments. But it's that question that's helped me more than anything else because i didn't mention jesus god the bible heaven hell sin righteousness judgment all these things that make them and us feel uncomfortable all i did was say to him fred do you think there's an afterlife and i do it every day every day i take my dog with me this is sam there he is sunglasses he's on my bike and we go out twice a day to local college. I ride right into the college and students come around and say, hey, I love your dog. How do you keep sunglasses on him? And I say, well, uh, he's well-trained. Size is elastic under his neck and behind his head, so he's got no choice. I say, you like dogs? Yeah. I say, we've got a YouTube channel, a couple hundred million views. Would you like to go on it? And I get to talk to them because the dog is my bait. And I always begin with, uh, do you think there's an afterlife? That's how I begin. And people share their hearts. So let's go on camera and talk about it. And I have this confidence, Doug, and those others that are listening, in two things. One is this is a human being. The person I'm talking to is not a dog or a cat or a horse or a cow. Is a human being, being made in the image of God. And God has put eternity in his heart. There's something in, in him that says, I don't want to die. Plus, I know from Hebrews 2, verse 14 and 15, that every day of his life, he is haunted by the fear of death. Mm. Haunted. That's the Amplified Bible. I should say it louder. I know that in him, there is a terror of death. The Bible calls death the king of terrors. But he doesn't talk about it. He hasn't told his mom, hasn't told his girlfriend. He just knows he thinks about death all the time. So I say to him, do you think there's an answer? I hope so. And I say to him, I am. That draws compassion and empathy out of my heart. It gets rid of all the other concerns. And the second great confidence I have, one is he has a will to live. That's going to make him listen. And two, he has a conscience. The work of the law is written upon his heart. So I know when I go through the commandments, that ally right in the heart of the enemy is going to bear witness. Romans 2 verse 15. It's going to say, yep. You shall not lie. You shall not steal. You shall not use God's name in vain. It's wrong to commit adultery. It's wrong to fornicate. All this is written upon his heart and acts as an ally in the heart of the enemy. It's like a judge in the courtroom of the mind that agrees with what the commandments say. So those two confidences, plus that question, do you think there's an afterlife? He's got a will to live and he's got a conscience. I can sit next to Einstein on a plane and not even be slightly intimidated by his intellect because I'm not going for his intellect. I'm going for his conscience. And that brings us all to a level playing field. That's awesome. You know, you, as you were sharing, I was reminded of Leonard Ravenhill's quote when he said, could a mariner remain idle if he heard a drowning cry? Could a doctor sit in comfort and just let his patients die? Could a fireman let people burn without lending a hand. Can you sit at ease in Zion? And I put in parentheses as a Christian, 
but while the world around you is damned? These are still powerful questions for us all. And I sense that's a part of the passion that this compassion you have and your passion for the Lord, compassion for people helps you to overcome the fear of man because you recognize that there is a soul and there's a person that needs to have a revelation of the work of the cross and the power of the resurrection. One of the things that I believe it was Winky Pratt and he said, he said, when God finds someone with courage to pray, preach, and live a life before him of holiness and compassion, he can literally change the face of a nation. And that was in his book, uh, Revival. If you said you equalize because everybody has a conscience, and at that moment, you're not dealing with intellect, because that can be intimidating if we compare ourselves with people. But when the Lord has given us a mandate in a heart for people, and, and we are driven by that which God has given us to do, we're able to minister the truth to see people set free. God has given you this unique tool with the Ten Commandments, as well as ideas. And I remember even you gave me one, and I don't know what I did with it, but it was the fake thumb. I won't tell the whole story, but you use these props to get people's conversations, and it draws a crowd. Then you're able to minister the Word of God to people. People see you as very successful. Now, we've heard of some of the challenges of all these years. Now, with media and with the millions of people that follow you or watch you on these different viewings, of course, working with Kirk Cameron, and the way of the master is open up so many more opportunities that you probably had never fathomed all those years ago. Are there areas of your life that with any leader like myself, you prayed for me. I remember back in 2015 when I went through my unexpected detour of cancer. Are there times in your life where you, you meet these unexpected detours, things you didn't expect, that if wind gets knocked out of you and you have to be able to press in to press on? Has there been something in your life that in the natural realm that you've had to press into the Lord even further so that you can get past those moments of challenges? Oh, yes. I could point to the very date that something happened to me. It's in the back of my Bible right here. I don't even want to look at it because it was so horrific. I was in the middle of the North Island in New Zealand ministering, and I was in a farmhouse in a back room when suddenly it was like a thousand demons invaded my mind. There's no other way I can describe it. I fell on the floor. It was so real. I tried exercising myself. That shattered me. And I didn't realize what it was called. It was called agoraphobia on steroids. And it absolutely shattered me to a point where I couldn't have a meal with my family for a year. It lasted for five years. It's called fear of the marketplace. And I, I had to continually minister to provide income for my family while dealing with this thing called agoraphobia. And one thing that absolutely helped me more than anything else was the understanding, I think it was Tozer or someone said this, before God uses a man, God breaks the man. And God absolutely broke me. I will not stay in a church building that sings the song Refiner's Fire. I will immediately run out of the room and wait till I finish singing that because when they sing Refiner's Fire, my heart's one desire is to be holy. Okay. What you want is a Job experience. That's what you're asking God for. You want your family to be killed. You want to lose your business. Everything's shattered so that God can use you. I'd rather go to chapter 38 of Job, see what Job learned and not ask for a Job experience. So I am absolutely terrified of the chastening of the Lord. Hebrews 12, God chastens whom he loves. And I look back and say, it was good for me that I was afflicted that I might learn your statutes. And those days 
of going through that panic attacks one after the other where you break into a sweat for no reason. It's like being chased by a lion and there's no lion. They drove me to my knees. And now when someone compliments me, it's like water off a duck's back. When conceited thoughts come in and I'm tempted to kiss the back of my hand, as scripture says, I despise it because of that experience. I never, ever want to go through that again. When we go through tough times, what we have to do is lean on the safety net scripture of Romans 8, 28, all things are working together for good. And then in Hebrews 12, when the chastening of the Lord comes, hold on to the word afterwards. Despise not the chastening of the Lord, neither faint nor rebuke of him, for the Lord loves the chastens. And then it says, afterwards, it brings forth the peaceable fruits of righteousness. I wrote that word afterwards in a large lettering and put it on my wall and said, there's going to be an end to this. God knows there's a light at the end of the tunnel. There's not a train heading for me. I'm going to come out of it. And I came out of it. And like I said, I was brought to my knees and that experience has kept me to my knees. So what we've got to do is rejoice when fiery trials come, even though we don't want to and we don't like them because they're purifying us and bringing the scum to the top or the dross to the top that God might scoop it off. So I thank God for those days and I hope the Lord's not listening at the moment because I don't want anything to do with it ever again. I remember Dr. Michael Brown, I think he wrote it in one of his books, but he used to say that when you ask for the fire of God, remember you can't negotiate with the flames. And, uh, (laughs) you know, Ray, in the next few minutes, you would not go out much like Ravenhill or Wilkerson and, and say, oh, I'm a prophetic voice or I'm a prophet. But you do walk in an anointing that God has given you that's very prophetic in your presentation and bringing conviction. It reminds me a lot of Charles Finney when he said, revival is no more miracle than a crop of wheat, recognizing the miracle is not in the planting or the watering. The miracle is what God does to the seed that we simply obey and plant, and he does the miracle. In these last few minutes, would you just share some things that are burning on your heart that you feel like we as the body of Christ, we as leaders, we as the church— need to be cognizant of in the days in which we're living, because revival will come by choice or by circumstance. And you've been around many, many decades now. You've seen the faithfulness of God. But in the midst of this, what would you say to us that you sense as a prophetic kind of a nudge of the Holy Spirit for the days ahead? Yeah, I would say uh, the church needs to get rid of the fluff and pastors, if I could get all the pastors together and preach to them, tell them to preach the fear of the Lord, the holiness of God, the wrath of God, the justice of God. I love what Paris Reedhead said. He said, that's what you do. And you whisper, John 3.16, because America has been saturated in the gospel. They've been given the cure to a point where they're contemptuous of it, and they've never been convinced of their disease. And so the two things I'd say to pastors and church leaders, preach the unadulterated word of God. Don't be ashamed to mention the word hell. It'll make sense if you use the law to open up the knowledge of what sin is. If God sees lust as adultery, if he sees hatred as murder and lying lips are an abomination to him, then hell is as just desert. So when we catch a glimpse of the holiness of God, we catch a glimpse of the exceeding sinfulness of sin and hell being our just desert. And then the cross becomes a light in a dark night to us. But the second thing I'd encourage pastors to do is lead the flock of God. Let me tell you what I mean by that. I was in a church, a combined church prayer meeting once, where all these different churches were represented by different people. And I could tell who went to what church by the way they prayed. I remember a girl saying, Father, 
And Pizar, she goes to John Steele's church because that's what John Steele always prays when he prays. Father, when he prays. People imitate their pastor. We're shaped by what we listen to and what we look at. And people will imitate the prayer of their pastor unknowingly, but they'll also imitate the priority of the pastor. If the priority of the pastor is a prophecy, that's what the church will be centered on. If the priority of the pastor is deep, dry theology, that's what the church will be centered on. But if the pastor catches a glimpse of Luke 15, where Jesus spoke of the lost coin, the lost sheep and the lost son, and we realize that the reason Jesus came was to seek and save that which is lost, and the pastor's priority becomes the same as what Jesus has. If he leans his ear upon the bosom of Christ, he'll hear the heartbeat of God and realize the cross was about saving sinners from wrath. That will become the priority of the pastor, and then it will become the priority in the pew. People imitate the pastor if he goes to play racquetball during the week, and on Sunday he stands up and says, hey, I spoke to an atheist this week. This is what he said, and this is what I said to him, and he said, I've enjoyed talking to you. And they'll begin saying, wow, the pastor condescends to the lowly task of evangelism, and they'll begin imitating him. We reproduce of our own kind. They will lead the flock of God. They'll become an example. And that church will become like the church of the book of Acts. And most churches aren't like the church of the book of Acts. The priority is not to seek and save that which is lost. They couldn't care less about the lost. I remember an experience I had that I'll never forget of being in a plane and seeing a girl walk towards me down the aisle. And she came and sat next to me. And she was wearing a gospel T-shirt and mentioned the gospel. And she was into gospel music. I said hello to her. She said hello to me. And on came those big earphones and they stayed on for an hour. And I began thinking, is this woman ever going to share the gospel with me? Does she care? She hasn't even bothered to sort of chat to me for a moment. So I went tap, tap. She took off her earphones and said, do you think there's an afterlife? You know, do you think heaven exists? Do you think, you know, there's a hell? What should I do? And she said to me, well, you don't want to go to hell, do you? put the earphones back on, kept listening to gospel music. And she is typical of the self-centered generation that sit in pews, listen to gospel music and couldn't care about the lost. You know, if you let someone die when you've got the ability to save them, if you let someone die, there's a rope at your feet and you let someone drown, you're guilty of what civil law calls depraved indifference. Depraved means as low as you can get indifference. It means you couldn't care less. And you can go to jail for the crime of depraved indifference. And it seems that much of our church is, to, is guilty of the crime of depraved indifference. And we need to get on our knees before God and say, oh, God, take a heart of stone. We've been a self-indulgent church that's more concerned about prosperity than we are, that people are going to hell. God, forgive us and create a heartness that has your heart and will seek and save that which is lost. That's good. One of the things that a question came up on the chat, Brian Runge from Salem Media in Houston asked, Brother Ray, do you remember the name of Spurgeon's sermon and when he preached it? And I guess he's referring to when you mentioned earlier about that message by Spurgeon that really made you think. I think it was from the book Soul Winner. I'm not sure, but there's another book by Spurgeon that blew me away and my wife lost so much sleep because of it, because she'd be asleep and I'd hit her, wake her up and say, listen to this. It's called Lectures to My Students by Charles Spurgeon. It's a wonderful book. 
That's awesome. Many people are straying away from certain messages saying, well, that's too political. How do you address that? Because a lot of the message of scripture can be called political. In fact, we're accused of being hate mongers. We're accused of being bigots and hypocrites. And and as you know, the word hypocrite comes from the ancient Greek saying of, of what a stage actor is, a person who's play acting. And so we understand that that many people are hypocrites in play acting. And I see that too much of what we do even today in the institutional Christianity is play acting. We're doing a lot of production and performance rather than being in his presence. It brings the presence of God that brings conviction to us and brings change. How do you address those accusations that if you speak about certain issues on to the atheists or about abortion or about traditional marriage, about things that we would hold as dear in biblical ideology, how do you deal with that when people accuse you of being a bigot or hypocrite or even of being too political? Well, there's a way to talk to homosexuals that's uncompromising and doesn't offend them. I do it all the time. I address their conscience. I don't go near homosexuality to begin with because they've got their boxing gloves on. They are waiting for you to bring up that issue, you fundamentalist bigot. So I don't. I just say to them, so what's your name, Fred? Fred, things in afterlife, blah, blah, et cetera. And then I say, so do you think you're a good person? And he says, yes, I'm a good person. So I just say, well, let's go through the commandments, see how you're going to do on Judgment Day. And it turns out that he's a liar, he's a thief, he's a blasphemer, and he's looked with lust. We haven't even touched the subject of homosexuality, and I really don't want to get into it because it turns my stomach. It's so unnatural and so unclean. But I love the guy, and I want to see him come to Christ. So I say, on Judgment Day, when you stand before God, are you going to be innocent or guilty? He says, I'm guilty. Will you go to heaven or hell? He said, it looks like I'll end up in hell. And I say, that is so true. You're in big trouble and my heart breaks for you. I don't want you to end up in hell. I want you to be saved. And add to that, listen to what Corinthians says, 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 10. It says, do not be deceived. Listen to what scripture says. Don't be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor adulterers, nor thieves, nor homosexuals, nor idolaters will inherit the kingdom of God. That's God's standard. And notice that word idolater is in there. That means someone who makes up their own God. I said, we tend to make up our own God when we have our own beliefs about his nature. He says, I had a God that I snuggled up to before I was a Christian. He used to pray every night. It was like a teddy bear to me, but he was just an image. He was just in my imagination, the place of imagery. And so if you think God is not going to punish thieves and liars and adulterers and fornicators and homosexuals because those are sins to him, then you've made up your own God and I don't want you to end up in hell. And so the reason I hold back with talking about his homosexuality is because when there's pride there, there's going to be resistance. But when there's humility and they say, well, what should I do? That's when there's an open door to reason with them. Same with abortion. You've got these people that go on and on about a woman's right. They don't esteem life because they don't fear God. Well, you bring the fear of God to their heart and show them they're, they've sinned against God. They're in big trouble. And then say, and what do you think about a baby in the womb? Would you kill it or let it live? That's another sin in God's eyes. You shall not kill. That's the sixth commandment. If you hate someone, the Bible says you're a murderer. <clears throat> so these are issues we deal with, but it's so important to hold on to that, what Jesus said, to be salt and light. We are salt and address these issues, but to uphold the light of the gospel, because the night I became a Christian, I instantly became pro-life instantly became one man, one woman in marriage. Didn't have any idea about the details of these issues, but because God gave me a new heart 
that caused me to walk in his statutes, I knew what was right in God's eyes. And so that's the answer. We're not only here to change society and make it function better socially, but we're here to make sure people are saved from the wraths to come. And we don't want a society that has no abortion, has one man, one woman in marriage, and no one lies or steals, but they all end up in hell. That's not our agenda. Our agenda is to uphold the cross and issuing from the train of the cross is the love of righteousness. So put the gospel first, make sure that's your priority, and all these other things will come right when someone becomes a Christian. When they love the Lord, they'll become pro-life. They'll vote righteously because God's given them the new heart with new desires. Ray, you had mentioned and talked about all these different areas of where people are damned or going to hell, et cetera. You mentioned all those. But there's a scripture in Revelation that adds all this list, but then it also says, and the cowards. Does it seem to you that we have been cowered into cowardice, and even in the church world, because of the pressures with society around us that are maybe not knowing how to speak the truth in love seasoned with grace, but speaking the truth nonetheless? It seems to me that that's an area that maybe God's dealing with the church for us, that we cannot be cowards in the presentation of what we know. We have this richness of the gospel. We have eternal life, and we're holding it off from serving others and giving them the very things that we have. You know, I meet Christians every day around at the college. I say, so you're a Christian? Yes. So I have one question for them. I say, do you read the Bible every day without fail? And they usually say something like this. I try to. And I say, oh, yeah. Do you try to eat your food? You don't try to eat your food. You just eat it because it's prioritized. You get up in the morning and have breakfast. You have lunch because you want it. And it's exactly the same with the scriptures. You don't try to read your Bible. You read it because it's a priority because someone says if you meditate on the law of God both day and night you'll be like as a tree planted by rivers of living water you'll bring forth fruit in season and so no bible no breakfast no read no feed is a standard thing I give to other people someone once said that years ago and I've always held on to that but the reason you read your bible is because you now want to you prioritize it and the reason you should share your faith is because you want to so let's go back to when you're a little kid you crawled you don't remember this thank god we don't remember that first three or four years but we crawled and then we stood to our feet because we didn't want to spend our life crawling. And then when you began to walk, you decided you wanted to ride a bike. When you got on the bike, it wobbled and you had a tough time and you fell off, but you rode a bike because you wanted to. When you wanted to drive a car, you learned to drive that vehicle that could kill other human beings, but you did it because you wanted the convenience of having a car and learning how to drive it. You did these things because you wanted to. And exactly the same applies with evangelism. Get to your feet, wobble, get on that bike. You know, I've taught my kids to ride bikes and it's a terrifying experience for a parent because you've got a screaming kid yelling behind you, don't let go, don't let go. And you want to say pedal because the Balance comes with motivation. The more you move, the quicker you move, the easier it is to balance. Same with evangelism. Just get going. Give someone a track. Ask somebody, do you think there's an afterlife? Just keep asking questions. Do you think you'll make it to heaven? And as you ride, you'll get balanced and you'll get motivated and you'll begin doing it and saying, this isn't as hard as what I thought. Every day I share my faith. It's an act of my will. 
I can sit in my lazy boy and watch old black and white movies all day if I wanted to, but I don't want to because I want to use my life to glorify God and to reach the lost. So evangelism is a priority. Study to show yourself approved. Workman that needs not be ashamed. And if you and I are ashamed, we are fearful to share our faith. It's because we've never studied it to show ourselves approved. So get moving. Just start with the gospel track. Leave it somewhere. Give it to someone. Say, did you get one of these? And then ask do you think there's an afterlife? And you'll find it's not as scary as what you thought. Amen. Well, Ray, I'm going to have you pray for us. I'm reminded of what Micah said in the book of Micah. He says, Out of Zion, the law shall go forth in the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And of course, Micah was called during a time of turmoil, divisiveness, social, political divisiveness, usury of the people, much like we see today. There's such a schism and such a chasm of divisiveness and and families against families, much like what even the Jewish historian Josephus uh, talked about before the destruction of Jerusalem. There was so much of that going on. There was such an imbalance and instability within God's people that it allowed the enemy to come in and divide and conquer, so to speak. And so I would ask you to pray for us and just pray for God to raise up courageous leaders, persevering leaders, when there's so many discouraged and bailing out right now, that would have the message of grace in love with truth and law, but we use the law as a schoolmaster. Pray for us and pray that in the world in which we're living that leaders would arise, men and women who would be unashamed of the gospel and really driven by the calling and passion of God to make a difference. As as Duncan Campbell quotes Thomas Chalmers during the Hebrides revival, he says, revival is the impact of the personality of Christ on the community. We need the impact of Christ and the presence of the Lord like never before. So, Ray, uh, thank you so much for being with us. Would you give final thoughts, pray for us, and then I'd like to close in prayer for you. Father, we uh, we're overwhelmed with your kindness and the fact that we're living in very, very dark days. But, Lord, it's darker without you, and we look to how that you invaded this earth. To them that sat on the shadow of death, a light has sprung up. The glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, who was the image of God, and you've entrusted us with the gospel. So, Father, may we be like the disciples who said we cannot but speak that which we've seen and heard. We have such a glorious gospel. Help us never to hold back. Help us to look with compassion on the unsaved and to run to them with this good news that Jesus Christ has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Pray for our church leaders. We pray for those in places of authority that will continue to live peaceful and godly lives. We pray for pastors that you'll give them great grace and great wisdom and the unity of spirit within their local church. And Lord, we do pray you'll bring us back to the priority of the book of Acts, that we will turn every corner with the steadfast thought that we will preach this gospel in the face of any adversity because we cannot but speak that which was seen and heard so give us courage give us the wisdom give us the means give us the love and the words and all we need to uh, reason with this lost generation to bring them the good news of the glorious gospel and uh, bless our efforts lord we we are so cognizant of the fact that your word says without you we can do nothing and we don't want to do nothing. So we implore you, we plead with you, God be with us and use us in these closing hours of time to reach this generation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Before I pray for you, Ray, is how can people find your books, get a hold of you at Living Waters? Is there a website? Is there ways for people to get a hold of your materials? 
Yeah, livingwaters.com. You can find Hell's Best Kept Secret at the bottom, that which we've talked about. You can listen to that free of charge. You can get our books on Amazon or at livingwaters.com. But please pray for our YouTube channel. As I said, we're on over 200 million views. Go back 30, 40, 50 years on how the church reached out to the unsaved would have combined church crusades. Take two years to draw the pull the cats together. Uh, get churches to combine in a unity cost millions of dollars. And most of the people within those crusades were churchgoers and Christians. So we are very, very overwhelmed with joy and trepidation that we have a means of reaching literally millions with this YouTube channel. So please pray for us and support it with comments that helps our algorithm and watch our videos and share them with others, especially share them with us. You know, people say, oh, Ray, I wish you could witness to my mom. She's not a Christian. I just feel like screaming and say, well, send the video to her and say, please let me know your thoughts on this. Don't say, watch it, mum. That's condescending. Say, mum, I'd love to know your thoughts on this. That appeals to the ego and uh, more likely to have it watched. So pray that God blesses our YouTube channel because it's such a wonderful means of reaching the lost. Amen. Well, Father, I thank you so much for this uh, very rich and thought-provoking, heart-touching, convicting time together with Ray. I thank you for the longevity and consistency of his life example and message of at least four decades I've known him or close to four decades. I thank you, Lord, for the reach that you're giving him in this platform today that uh, many, they aspire to, but he doesn't aspire to. He just wants to get the message out and you've given him that platform. Father, I thank you that he's not enamored with celebrity, but he is, Father, in love with you. He's walking in the calling that you've given him and being a faithful steward to share the message you've given to him. So, Father, I pray for he and his family, the ministries he stewards, the platforms you give to him, that multitudes upon multitudes who are still in the valley of decision will come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me encourage everyone, let us not settle in complacency. While there are multitudes in the valley of decision today, let's not be hardened of heart or sit back on the beach of comfort and apathy while so many are still shipwrecked in the sea of despair and death. And I think the message today, and Ray sharing his heart, of course, his life message and example, continues to provoke us to think that it's important to get past institutional Christianity. Let's get back into the incarnational presence of God, that we can share the truth, and the truth will set people free. But we need to speak the truth in love, seasoned with grace, but speak the truth nonetheless. And as Micah said, that we would also walk humbly before our God. And I think that's important to do justly, to love mercy, and to make sure we walk humbly before our God. And I think that's the real key. Many of us forget where we've come from, but I think we never forget where we've come from. Recognize that stewardship is what God gives us to share the message of truth that sets people free, the message of the gospel. We hope you enjoyed this episode of A Word in Season with Doug Stringer and Friends and ask you to prayerfully consider supporting the ministry at somebodycares.org or by texting your donation amount to 805-422-7348. Please join us again for A Word in Season with Doug Stringer and Friends.